Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of the QuietMark podcast. I'm your host, Simon Gosling, CMO at QuietMark. And QuietMark is the independent global certification program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. Through scientific testing and assessment, QuietMark identifies the quietest products in multiple categories spanning many sectors, including home appliances and technology, building sector materials, and commercial sector products. On today's show, we're going to focus on the subject of tuning the sound of technology. And that's the title of a brilliant two-page paper written by today's guest, Matthew Bennett. Matthew is a composer and sound artist and principal at Acoustic Ecology Design Partners. He's also the former director of sound and sensory design at Microsoft. And his paper, Tuning the Sound of Technology, looks at the subject of cutting through the noise to design better digital experiences. So let me start by reading a short biography of Matthew, but then I'd like to read that two-page paper before introducing Matthew to the show. Few people have as much applied experience in product sound design as Matthew Bennett, who has made it his mission to change the way people think about the global soundscape of technology. He spent 12 years at Microsoft, where he founded and directed the Sound and Century Design Program. As chief sound designer at the company, he created and shaped the sound of Microsoft's major global products and platforms, that's Windows, Office, Outlook, Skype, Teams, Cortana, HoloLens, Xbox, Surface and Azure. The sounds he created for Windows are heard each day on more than 1 billion devices worldwide. Known as the company's sound artist in residence, Bennett spent years at Microsoft in design R&D, creating a new paradigm that studies product sound within a broader sensory design framework. Working with teams across the company, he combined art, science and engineering to develop new sensory-driven interaction models and to create design languages that support intuitive and inclusive experiences. He's an award-winning composer, performer, and producer with a background in ethnomusicology, where his graduate research focused on anthropology of sound and sensory experience before taking a sabbatical from PhD course to accept a temporary position working at Microsoft. Temporary in quotations, he ended up being there for 12 years. Matthew says that his mission is to help make the global soundscape of technology more useful, more beautiful, and more inclusive, and more soulful, he says, as a chime goes off on his watch appropriately enough. So let me read that two-page paper and we'll introduce Matthew to the show. Environmental sound affects every aspect of our lives. Those humble little platform sounds are putting a lot of emotional energy into the world. What was the last device sound you heard and how did it make you feel? If your response is like that of many people, we need to shift the way we think about the global soundscape of technology. The alarm model. Today's fragmented soundscape of technology is the logical development of an outdated alarm-based design model where loud sounds compete to capture attention. There's a fine line between fighting for our attention and being intentionally annoying. The basic assumptions of an alarm-based model are so ingrained that they are often not recognised even by experienced sound designers. Because we are hardwired to react to sudden sounds with a fight or flight startle response, which releases cortisol, increases heart rate, and changes breathing, it's no surprise that this design approach causes widespread anxiety, which has a direct impact on our mental and physical health. The current world of device sounds has been described as dystopian cacophony, full of noise and sonic clutter. Meanwhile, the overwhelming visual nature of digital culture desensitizes us to input received from our other senses. In the choreography and flow of our digital lives, we don't notice the negative impact these sounds are having on our body, our emotions, and our ability to concentrate. We don't realize they are making us less healthy, less happy, and less productive, that they are bad for customers, bad for business, and bad for society. Why do we accept this? We expect excellence in visual and hardware design, yet we've become accustomed to the idea that our technology naturally sounds kind of annoying. The alarm-based model of sound design hasn't changed much in decades and lags generations behind its sister disciplines. We can begin healing these disparities by embracing a more holistic design perspective based on the way humans feel sound in context. We need to involve the discipline of sound design into the practice of sensory design. The sensory model. Contrary to the conventional thinking, our senses are not separate channels. They continually converge and overlap. We always experience sound as part of a multi-sensory web of perception because we respond to sound more quickly than to our other senses. It plays a crucial role in orchestrating the physical and emotional texture of sensory experience. Sound shapes what we see, what we touch, and how we feel about it. 
Moving from sound design to sensory design means tapping into the wisdom of these intuitive processes to design moments that resonate more deeply with the body and mind and imagining new kinds of sound design languages that cut through the noise to connect people and technology in deeper, more natural ways. As physical energy, sound is vibration that travels through air, part of the spectrum of vibration we feel and hear, not just with our ears, but with our bodies, especially our skin. Sound is literally touch from a distance. As physiological energy, sound is a carrier of emotion interacting with imagination and memory. The vibrations of sound surround us and connect the exterior physical world with our interior emotional world. The sensory model is less about sound and hearing, more about sound and feeling. It's less about individual, discrete sounds that demand attention, and more about sound seamlessly integrated with experience. It's less concerned with designing isolated sonic events, and more with weaving a connected soundscape. The best sounds are usually the ones we don't hear. We simply feel them because they blend into the texture of our life. In the sensory model, quiet is beautiful and more functional. We design silence. In fact, quiet sounds are often the most effective. As louder sounds fight for attention, they create distraction and resistance. But quiet sounds blend more seamlessly to help choreograph calm, fluid rhythms of experience. Instead of competing to be at the center of attention, sensory sound works gently from the periphery, expanding the depth of cognitive and digital space. The sensory model has implications for all types of product, sound and environments. It offers a new way to conceptualize the design of critical alarms in fields like healthcare, where noise pollution from medical devices is a serious problem. We can combat pervasive alarm fatigue and improve health outcomes with a sensory model that supports new design strategies for ambient awareness and that priorities seamless audibility over sheer loudness to capture attention. A new acoustic ecology. Shifting our thinking from sound design to sensory design can transform the way we listen to our products, to each other and to the world. With a holistic sensory model, we can create digital experiences that are more grounded in the body and the heart. To imagine what a more beautiful functional global soundscape of technology could be like, think about the sound of the rainforest, an immersive sonic environment dense with useful information. It's also beautiful, harmonious and calm. More than just a soundscape, this is a healthy, sustainable acoustic ecology. We should settle for nothing less in the sounds of technology that shape our products, our environments and our daily lives. This paper, as I mentioned, was written by Matthew Bennett, and it is with my great pleasure that I introduce Matthew to the show. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to hear you read that. It's, it's always educational to hear someone else uh, reading something you've written and becoming a listener instead of an author or a speaker. Well, it was amazing to read it for me too, Matthew, because in all honesty, if I had given someone the brief and said to them, we're doing the next episode of the podcast, I want you to listen to every episode that's preceded it over the last year and write something which is tailor-made for the next step of our podcast. It's almost as if you'd bespoke written it for us because this is exactly the page that we're on in the show. Yeah, you know, I, feel, I definitely feel that um, synchronicity uh, and that alignment in our work. It's almost like we've been working together for a long time, even though we just met a couple of weeks ago. Um, but our missions and... Um, think our values are definitely aligned it's almost like talking to an old friend already oh, i feel the same it's very nice of you to say that but actually talking of the way that sound reverberates and bounces around and old friends it's kind of the path that brings you and i to these microphones sitting on uh, uh you know a video conference system enjoying this conversation today go back to old friends to to to, to outline the path 10 years ago I met Steve Keller, who um, I met him at an event, and he's our guest on episode nine, which is from advertising to architecture. And Steve, in turn, introduced me to Yoko Sen, who's an ambient musician, who is transforming the way that soundscapes occur in hospitals. Yoko introduced me to someone she's collaborating with, Dr. Elif Ojkan Vieira, who's at TU Delft, who's another podcast uh, guest. And you kindly added a lovely comment on her post of our podcast episode. And I thought, who's this guy commenting? I like his comment. Click, find out more about him. And then I, as soon as I saw what you were doing, Matthew, I thought, this guy's got to be on the show. So 
from old to new and to today, it's, it, it all adds up to, and it's a nice continuing journey. Again, thank you for coming. It's wonderful to be here. And I have this, I, this kind of image in my uh, mind that people who are interested in um, sound and design and these kinds of uh, psychoacoustic issues uh, would make, uh, you know, they're kind of spread across Europe and the United States, and there's like a handful of us, and we're just about enough to like show up at a, a mid-sized dinner party at someone's house. <laughs> that would be a great party, by the way. <laughs> I should ask uh, you, actually, where are you talking to us from for the listeners? So I'm in, at my home in Seattle, Washington, um, and in my home studio there where I do most of my work. Oh, fantastic. And that paper, there's, like I say, there's so much that resonates uh, within it. Um, in fact, one of the things that it did make me think of, first of all, and in no particular order, although I want to know more about your history, but there was a report in The New Yorker in 2019 you know you said we spent you the paper states we spend a lot of time on the visual design of devices but sometimes not so much on the acoustic and the sounds that they make or the quality of the sounds that they make and there was a report in the new yorker in 2019 with the headline is noise the next big pollution and there's a reporter in that called david owen who is talking about new york city and talking about accepting things the way they are and he said you know if you could see the noise pollution in New York, it would look like piles and piles of plastic bottles strewn everywhere. It would just be an utter mess. But because we can't see it, we just go, oh, well, that's New York. That's what New York likes. It just gets louder, it gets louder, it gets louder, and there's nothing you can do about it. But you really would do something about it if it was plastic bottles everywhere. That, that story from David Owen must resonate with what you wrote in that paper. Yeah, that's. I love that analogy because it really... Um gives a material physical aspect to to what we experience uh, uh, psychologically when we're in those kinds of sound environments. And I think when people hear an analogy like that, a, a metaphor like that, it rings true right away. And they go, oh yeah, that's, that is what it feels like. But when we're actually in those um, sound environments that are so stressful, we're not always aware of of the, the level of stress and the amount of noise pollution and the effects that it's having on us. For one reason, we're trying so hard just to focus on what we're doing, um, blocking out the noise. So yeah, I think that metaphor, um, giving that, that physical um, metaphor that gives sound some materiality <laughs> yeah. um, is fantastic and really drives that point home. And I would always also say that another way to think about that is like touch. If um, you know, because sound does have this, uh, sound is touch at a distance. It has a, a haptic quality. It's, it's um, a physical touch that comes into contact with our bodies. But if we think of it like that, um, not only is it, does sound, uh, noise pollution have a, a physical aspect, it's got an, a very intrusive um, uh, personal physical aspect. You know, it's always impinging on us and affecting our um uh, our ability to focus and to concentrate. And if, if we were literally, you know, kind of being assaulted like that, um, if, if sound were touch, uh, it, it would be more clear that it is um, sort of a physical assault. And that's really the way it feels in, in some situations. And we're used to thinking about that in, you know, um, noisy urban landscapes. But I'm kind of expanding into this area where I'm trying to understand how um, unexpected sounds in even in quiet areas, in quiet contexts, can affect us. We can still have a fight or flight response, even to a very quiet sound, um, if it's unexpected and if our if if it's noisy in relation to the baseline um, uh, acoustic levels of our of our environment. For instance, if you're you know if your home is quiet and say your children are sleeping, um, and all of a sudden there's a a sound that you uh, a, a notification sound that you didn't expect, um, it can it, it, this happened to me the other night, actually. I, it was actually the middle of the night, and I heard a very quiet sound, um, but I just had this immediate visceral physical response to it because it was unexpected. And I wasn't particularly, um, it wasn't a scary sound or a frightening sound in any way, um, at least not consciously. Um, but I noticed that I was just having this kind of adrenaline rush um, yeah. for a few minutes after that. Um, so even quiet sounds can be, um, even sounds that, in other contexts might seem quiet, can actually um, be a form of noise pollution, which is really just any kind of unwanted sound or, and especially um, unexpected sounds.
Well, Matthew, something you're saying there reminds me of one of the conversations I enjoyed in the very first episode of the Quiet Mark podcast, where Richard Grove uh, from BDP used this phrase. He said, we don't have ear lids. We have eyelids. We can shut sight off, but we don't have ear lids. We can't shut sound off. And he talked about this being vital because back in... uh, you know, early man days when we were in our caves or uh, sleeping around the campfire, if you heard a crack in the woods, it could be a predator of some sort. And we were designed to respond to whatever it might be that we, we may be prey to. And you talked about an assault on the senses in New York, but one of the lines that punches straight out from your paper, of course, is the equivalent of 253 years of audio that comes from the music that you compose for Windows 10 platform. I mean, that's not just a crack in the woods. That's crack, 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 crack. I mean, that's just mad. Yeah, it's a it, it's a whole level of magnitude more than, than um, frankly, than I even personally realized um, we were, uh, of sound that we were introducing into the world. Um, so it was very humbling and um, uh, ear-opening <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to do those calculations and realize um, how much sound and how much emotional energy we're putting into the world. I was immediately struck with the amount of responsibility that, that any designers who, who deal with that amount of sound have. And, and you know, Windows isn't the only platform in the world um, putting out that much sound. There, there are other big platforms as well um, and many other apps. Um, and I think together we all have a responsibility, an ethical responsibility to design for health and, and sustainability. And, and it's not just the right thing to do. It's, it's a good thing to do for business as well. You know, I mean, it's good for our customers. It's good for business. It's good for society, as, as I said in the paper. It really is a more holistic approach that addresses needs on many different levels. But yes, it, it is kind of a daunting position to be in. And it really ha- has made me think very carefully about, you know, first, uh, the, the Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, get rid of all the annoying sounds that you possibly can uh, have as much silence as you can, and then the sounds that do remain, make them as, as beautiful and seamless and functional and inclusive as you can. What I know from the conversations that I've enjoyed with you to date is that you approach your work with a real sense of social uh, responsibility and a real great depth of emotional intelligence and you want to make sure that the, the notifications are not harmful to us you want you want to improve them and that, that's your drive nevertheless there's a famous documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma where we see how the big social platforms are really competing what they what they term it in the program competing for our eyeballs they want to get us back on those devices so that we see their advertisements and they can get more advertisers to advertise on their platforms and they're doing so much and putting so much ai and so many tricks into really keeping us glued to our devices and um, looking at them more and more and more whereas your approach sounds more holistic and more human but is is it hard to be in a field where so much is being done to get people's attention, whereas what you're trying to do is make it more at ease and increase well-being? Is there not a conflict going on in the market right now? You're right, Simon. There's definitely a tension between um, this kind of cultural crisis of anxiety that surrounds our relationship to technology right now that people are more and more aware of. Um, and I think designers themselves are more aware of it too, and, and more and more designers are... Um, are laying out principles of, of good design, of ethical design, um, and uh, understanding that when you design at scale for billions of people in some cases, um, f- for you know a single platform, um, you really have a responsibility because you, when you do that, you're becoming part of their lives. And from a, an audio perspective, the sounds that we create um, are becoming part of people's personal soundscapes and, and their audio environments. Um, and there's definitely um, an ethical responsibility that goes along with that and, uh, and an awareness of um, really how, um, how toxic um, bad sound design can be, uh, to be frank. Um, mm-hmm. It is like noise pollution. We've talked about physical and <laughs> material uh, yeah. metaphors for, for the pollution and, and also about um, sort of the, the, the physical assault that that can feel like. So... Um, you know, designing strategies to to communicate and and not only to just kind of neutralize the bad stuff, but also uh, 
you know, this is a, so there's a challenge to, to neutralizing the bad stuff. Um, but there's also a huge opportunity to create more, more beautiful stuff and create more good experiences. So it's not just that I want to get rid of bad sound. Um, I also want to find new strategies to, to create more beautiful sounds and, and, and more functional sounds. And by that, I mean sounds that, um, that can blend seamlessly with people's lives. It's not even necessarily, as I said in that paper, about sounds um, that people hear, you know, like a big fancy sound like, you know, that calls attention to, to me as a sound designer or my clients as, as these important um, patrons who can create this powerful sound that's going to blow you away. Um, it, it's much more about the quiet, subtle sounds, um, that support seamless experiences and that blend into our, um, to our, to this web of sensory experience, you know, sound that can help choreograph these more meaningful experiences, uh, between what we're seeing, what we're touching, um, and, and what we're hearing. From your answer there, Matthew, I think I get a little bit of, you know, the yin and the yang, I suppose there's you know, when we talk about devices being made by companies by Microsoft, that's one thing. It's using a tool, using an email platform. Um, but then when we're talking about applications like the social networks that are featured in that Netflix documentary, they're different to the Microsofts of this world. They are, you know, they don't like to call themselves advertising media platforms, but that's essentially what they are. You know, you don't get that social media platform for free. They use your data and they give it to advertisers to target. And it's all, we know it's a big advertising mechanism. So their directive is to do things to get your attention. Whereas someone like Windows, Microsoft, their directive is to give you a pleasurable experience using their tools. They're very different motives at the end of the day. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, you know, of the big platforms, there are there are different business models, um, and I would just say that I think these dynamics that we're talking about, where um, people's bodies and minds are are literally just um, kind of overwhelmed by the amount of of visual information, particularly, but also um, a, a secondary stream of of audio information that's coming to them, especially during. Um, you know, during this last year or so of COVID times when people, mm. so many more people are working at home um, and uh, the level of, um, of uh, obviously people are in more video meetings and stuff. And there's also a lot more um, messaging and texting going on. So mm -hmm. um, a lot of us are just hearing those messaging sounds of m multiple platforms in some cases all day long. Um, and there's just no way you can you can focus or concentrate when you're constantly being interrupted like that. There's a lot of great um, cognitive science on on concentration and how even small interruptions can um, take a while to recover from. So the result is that we never really get those moments to, um, you know, when we're constantly being poked by yeah. a, a steady stream of sounds, we never get those moments to kind of reflect on the information that we are processing um, to and certainly to gain insight. I mean, it, it the steady stream of sounds poking us kind of changes our relationship to to the content that we're that we're consuming um, or the work that we're trying to do, and, um, and and the way that sound affects the way we process information is is really interesting. And there's a lot of great work showing that that sound can can actually enhance our ability to process information, to integrate, to reflect. Um, to uh, and also to have empathy with with the people that are on the other ends of these interactions most of the time. Sound can has the potential to create a lot of noise and clutter, but it can also um, contribute to creating a, a supportive environment uh, that that is good for people's well-being. Any new technology that comes out picks up where the previous technology left off. So as an example, when you look at the very first cars, they look like horse-drawn carriages uh, without the horses. You had the engine in the front, but the wheels still protruded from externally from the car. It took a few years for the wheels to come underneath the car and, and wheel arches to happen and for the car to actually start becoming not a motorized horse-drawn carriage, but a car in its own right. And modern cars by comparison look like ufos compared to horse-drawn carriages similarly i come from a, a film background as, as you know matthew and 
one of the things we know is that it took about 10 years for the first edit to happen in film, uh, a cut to close-up. Prior to that, film, in some respects, was replacing what had preceded it, which was theatre. So what they did was they locked off the camera, they looked at a stage, and you essentially were given the best seat in the house. And you could, you didn't have to do the performance every night, you could run it to film and run it in many theatres up and down the country in a single night. So, But it took 10 years for the edit to happen. Devices... You know, when we think about dating back to the beginnings of iPhones, for example, in 2008, around 2008 time, we're still in the very, very early days of devices. And notifications, well, what preceded them was alarms. And as your paper articulately states, you know, alarms were designed to gain our awareness. But notifications have to come from somewhere. They are, and it has to come from alarm system. But you talk about sensory sound design. And you talk beautifully of the rainforest and the pleasant experience of the rainforest. Tell us more about that journey. How can notifications gain our attention without alarming us? That's a really beautiful analogy you have about uh, the different technologies and how the old metaphors took time to change in the framework of of the new technology. Um, And I definitely see that. I think we're at that kind of a juncture with sound design right now, sound design for technology specifically, and and what I call product sound design, um, which is really its own special sub-discipline that's only been differentiated and and sort of defined in the last, um, I'd say the last five years, um, clearly, you know, where um, the sound isn't, uh, it's not music, it's not sound effects, it's not Foley like you would hear in film, but it's actually its own way of thinking about sound, um, which, you know, still involves a lot of this um, alarm-based thinking because that has been so deeply baked into the way um, sound designers work. Uh, Even sound designers who have a lot of experience um, often uh, have assumptions that are kind of based on on the alarm paradigm and on capturing attention. Um, But I think that's asking the wrong question, and we really need to be thinking about how to uh, how to be at the periphery of experience instead of the center of experience, how to be calm instead of um, attention grabbing um, and, and look for sounds that can be as quiet as possible to convey the information. You know, they should just be noticeable just above that, uh, the J and D, the just noticeable difference, uh, the threshold of perception um, at the point where if they're, if they're missing, it feels like the experience is, is less alive somehow, less, less beautiful. Um, but they're not really impinging actively on, on consciousness and attention and focus. And for me, the, the, the rainforest provides um, a great metaphor for um, a very densely textured um, audio environment that also uh, supports attention and focus and allows you to, um, to, to shift your thinking, uh, shift your attention back and forth between the different layers of, of audio, you know, the canopy, um, the wind, the vegetation, all very clearly, even though um, there are multiple streams coming coming at you, they're, they've evolved in such a way that they create a very sort of harmonious um, harmonious texture, a, a kind of a, a integrated texture um, that that most people find find very pleasing uh, and and soothing and, and calm. Um, which is exactly the kind of aesthetic that we need from the soundscape of technology. You know, it's not just a bunch of isolated sounds. Whether we like it or not, we really have created a global soundscape of technology. And realizing that, I think, is is the first step. <laughs> Admitting we have a problem. Um, and, and once we start to frame it like that, we can start to think about how to, how to design differently and what kinds of strategies uh, can help create better experiences and more beautiful experiences, more, more soulful experiences. So this, the alarm paradigm is still around. Um, but I think there's a slow shift to what I call, uh, uh, the sensory paradigm and thinking less about, um, sound design and sound and hearing and more about sensory design and sound, sound and feeling and sounds that can move from the periphery, um, of our attention to the center and back again, kind of fluidly. It's interesting you say that, Matthew, yeah. though, because as you've been answering that question, moving from hearing to sensory, that throughout the course of your answering that, that question so well, my watch has silently let me know that um, someone that I follow has shared a tweet. And my watch has also told me that an e- I, my, I've received uh, an email. And 
whilst it's been quiet, it's different types of haptics taking place on my wrist. But they're quite irritating while I'm talking to you. And I suppose oh. one of the things, we, I mean, obviously they're not irritating to the point that they interfere with you answering the question. But nevertheless, there's me thinking, um, you know, I'm not going to look at my watch. I'm having a conversation with Matthew here. And it, <laughs> it, would be, it would be rude. But it's also irritating because you still get that same sensory feeling of, Who's that? What's that? And what's trying to get my attention? And one of the things we've evolved with in terms of uh, food intake, for example, um, is what we eat. You know, you we can all just eat, 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 eat. Or we say, actually, what am I putting into my body? And we take measures to, you know, to, to, to improve that and be healthier. And I suppose, yes, it's important, like in the watch example there, it's important that we improve the ways that it notifies us and lets us know that we've received a tweet or an email. But at the same time, just as you stop eating, you can also choose to stop receiving notifications. And I think we have to take periods of rest from our devices and from our notifications. That's a that's a whole other ballpark. Wow. Yeah, you're really touching on some core issues there about how we, how we curate our own sensory environments. Um, and I think... One of the powerful things about understanding sound as a sensory experience is that it can transform the way people listen to their own environments um, and their own um, uh, realization of how, how sound affects them and their relationships and their work and their ability to process information and the way they behave. Um, so not only can it affect the way we design, but it can potentially affect the way that we, we listen to each other and to our, to our environments. Um, and it can help exp- our design palettes and we can create healthier and you know more sustainable digital experiences but it can also uh, calling people's attention allowing people the space to um, to experience sound in a new way can also have um, a very positive effect on their lives and um, what I've seen in, in workshops that I conduct uh, for deep listening and and um, the sound of technology and, and other issues surrounding sound and sensory experience is that um, when you do a few simple exercises with people about um, listening to their environment, um, once they tune into it, they can't tune out. Once you hear it and all the stuff that's going on around you, uh, positive and negative, um, but wanted and unwanted, you can't unhear it. It, uh, it really kind of flips a switch in your brain and you become sort of sensitized to, to these experiences, these perceptual experiences that we're always having. And I think that's a good thing. Um, people are very um, sensitive now to curating their, their environments visually. You know, um, there's a lot of energy that goes into to design and not just visual and, uh, you know, interior design, not just visuals and colors, but... Um, uh, textures and fabrics and, and, you know, so, so people are used to curating sensory experience, um, and kind of, um, in a way orchestrating, um, their own sensory experiences in ways that, that are meaningful for them. Um, but they do that much less with sound. Um, now that's separate from music. People obviously use music, um, uh, as part of their, uh, lifestyle and, um, in, in very meaningful ways. Um, but they don't often extend the same kind of um, awareness or, or energy to, to noticing the sounds around them. With, with a sensory design approach, um, that gives us a channel to, to really think about sound in a more holistic way. In the program, we have these tiny little harp interludes which break things up. And I love those, by the way, yeah. That's a lady who's Tom Petty, Sting, Leonard Cohen's harpist. <laughs> Really? Yes. Hetty Webb. She's, I, she's a harpist to the stars. I have to say, I love when you, when you use those harp um, moments, how you leave space. Uh, oh, and, thank uh, you. It, it, That's the drummer it, in it me. Really, <laughs> it's what? It's the way? It's the drummer in me. I literally time when I'm doing the editing. I'm thinking, right, how long do I let this resonate for before I bring my voice back in? <laughs> well, it gives people a chance to take a breath. And um and just kind of compose themselves and and start to focus instead of just hitting you right away with sound because you think that people can't handle silence you know, um it, not that you think that but obviously a lot of uh, content creators think that um so it's really refreshing just to it's like watching a great director who just really leaves a lot of space and you know uh, 
and and that's how I felt. And oh, thank and, you. And and that, that's kind of part of your brand too, right? I mean, it should be about being able to be quiet and being comfortable with quiet. That's um, the idea. But so often, anyway, go ahead. No, Sorry. no. Uh, I, I, listen, I love the fact that you, I'm talking to an expert of your caliber who's recognized what I've done there. It's great. <laughs> it's nice to see it's communicated. I, I really appreciate that. But no, I mean, there will be a little heart moment, which there's not going to be now because I'm going to keep these compliments in the show. <laughs> we'll assume, <laughs> but we'll assume that there was a heart moment to which I will then say, after a period of silence, Matthew, on your LinkedIn, I read an article uh, which you'd posted on your LinkedIn. It was written by you, had a short video on it, and it's a charming video, which I'll probably share in the lead up to this show. So hopefully people have seen it by the time they hear this recording. It's the video that shows the contour, which is shared internationally in the phrase, ready to go. Tell us more about that story, if you wouldn't mind, and what it applies to in terms of platforms. Sure. Um, one aspect of the sensory design framework is the idea of the music of language. Um, we know that uh, language communicates more actually by uh, pitch and prosody and rhythm and the nonverbals um, than it actually does by, by the verbals in, in many contexts. So um, that's to say that the, the melody and the rhythm of the way I'm talking to you right now is communicating a lot about how I'm feeling and and um, the way I'm structuring my ideas and, and pacing my thought and what I'm trying to communicate to you more so than just the literal words if you were just kind of reading a, a transcript. So um, it's sort of like the the breadth of, of, of language. And uh, part of the sensory design approach was to see how we could take that realization that um, that number one, the the music and contour of language is, is at least as important, if not more important, than the literal connotations of of the words in many cases, and combine that with another realization that um, from from the academic research that many languages uh, that don't seem related have similar underlying contours for various kinds of emotional expressions. Not to say that they translate exactly, but there there are certain shapes, you know, um, rising, falling, um, short staccato things. And we were looking for seeing how we could use these sort of archetypes that underlie most spoken languages to create sound that was more intuitive and that would integrate more deeply into the digital experiences that we were creating for Windows at the time. So we created this methodology where uh, we literally uh, recorded native speakers from many, many different languages saying very similar kinds of, of statements that were, um, I would say, emotionally equivalent, even if they weren't necessarily literally equivalent, and looking for, for patterns that could then be abstracted and uh, converted just into our sonic language. So the one that we talked about in the, in the video that, that hopefully your listeners have had a chance to see is... Uh, is the phrase ready to go. So um, that would be an emotionally appropriate statement for, say, a, a hypothetical calendar reminder. Um, instead of like, you know, get up, it's time to go. Um, you know, we thought about how would, how would someone who, is, who cares about us, who is in our uh, sort of more or less intimate circle of, of um, relationships, how would someone in our life talk to us if it was, if, uh, they were preparing us to get ready to go to an appointment. Um, so we use lots of different kinds of phrasings and stuff um, in different languages, but they all kind of resolved uh, comfortably to to a certain kind of um, uh, contour, which I would describe as, and I'll sort of sing it to you now, uh, it's kind of like ready to go, where it kind of goes um, up and down and then up a little more at the end, ready to go. Almost, you know, it, it, it is a question. Uh, it's also kind of a, a, a rhetorical contour. So what that did was give us a springboard into a whole new way of thinking about those sounds and where we wouldn't have usually had a, um, a, a four-note sound for, for the calendar reminder, and especially with those contours. So using the, um, language, the music of language as a model, allows us to uh, create sounds that people recognize intuitively and emotionally and at this kind of very um, primitive level uh, and that can blend into experience more seamlessly. Even if the sound is technically a little bit longer than the kind of um, UI sound we might have designed otherwise, um, 
it actually can feel shorter and less intrusive because it uh, it, it aligns with these deeper um, archetypes. Um, and you know, everyone's an expert in their native language. So if you can kind of tie into to those um, musical contours and rhythms and tie them to the appropriate emotional moment of 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 the experience, the digital experience, then you can really connect with people in um, in some deeper, more intuitive ways. Yeah, I like that phrase, ready to go. I mean, it's those four syllables. And as you said, it, it could easily, you know, ready to go. It could easily be shorter to do the same job on calendar. But here's the thing I thought about when I watched that video, when I listened to your answer, Matthew. You know, we've been in an office where you can see a colleague and they're immersed in a, a document or something and you can see the look on their face. They're thinking hard and you th- and you look over to them and you're thinking... I need to let that person know that they've got a meeting and the people the people who've come to see them are now in reception waiting for them. There's two ways to approach that person who's deep in thought doing something. You can either go, stop doing that, your, your, your clients are here, you've got to stop doing that and get, get outside. Or you can go over to the same person in the same mood and say, hey, um, just to let you know your clients are sitting outside, they know you're busy, they take your time, but um, just to let you know that they're ready, waiting for you when you're ready. You know, you're going to get two totally different reactions from that person who you've just interrupted yeah. from their task. One's going to be, oh my God, they're here already, oh my God, I'm not prepared, <laughs> or whatever. Or the other one's like, oh, thanks, man, can you just get them a coffee? I just need to finish this paragraph and I'll be down there. Can you keep them uh, happy for the next two minutes and I'll be there in a moment? And it's a totally different um scenario uh but it's the same it's but it's the right. same situation that guy has got people waiting in reception to be seen however you like it it's actually a perfect analogy for what we do um with product sound design and you just made me realize too i, I don't think i've ever quite formulated it this way but our job is to interrupt people with those sounds not only are there 253 years of of sound being put into the world every day <laughs> but every one of those um you know six billion sounds is is intentionally interrupting somebody who's we know is going to be trying to do something else. So how can we take that knowledge and how can we take our understanding of what an empathetic response in a, in a real life situation would be to, to a colleague or a, a person or a friend who's, who's in that situation? How can we apply those dynamics to yeah. the sound, uh, to the sounds we design? And there are a few like literal structural things that we can take from, from the way that you outlined how you would approach your colleague with some sensitivity to how we design our sounds. The first thing is you don't just surprise them, right? You don't yell at them. You don't just go up behind them and touch them <laughs> when they're not ready. You let them know you're there and it happens very naturally. You might, if you were standing behind them, you might take a breath. Um, they would see you, they'd see you approaching or whatever, but they have some sort of preparation mm. before someone talks to us. Um, they usually take a breath. We know that they're going to speak to us. So we're prepared. Um, and we actually build those little breaths into sound design for technology sometimes where um, there's just a little bit of a, um, um, a, little, a, a little bit of a, a, a breath that comes um, before the main sound, you know, and then the sound blooms and then it kind of can taper off. Um, and we found that those structures are usually received, um, processed as being calm and less interrupting. Um, people get this sense that... Um, you know, something's about to happen and they don't even feel it, uh, notice it consciously. It's much more something that, that is just felt because it's very natural. Uh, but it, you know, there's just like about a hundred milliseconds at the beginning of a, you know, that's like a 10th of a second, um, where there'll be just this little kind of quiet, um, upbeat for the sound, um, before the, the, the main part of the sound starts, you know, they've got like a beginning, a middle and an end. So the beginning is this little hundred millisecond prelude. Uh, the core part of the sound might be three or 400 milliseconds. Um, that's the three or four, um, main notes, uh, ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then there's a long kind of, um, falling off of, uh, uh, a reverb tail, which is kind of this transparent, um, uh, extension of the sound that allows it to, um, you know, it kind of bloomed from the environment that the person was in, and then it allows it to kind of transparently uh, dissipate back into the environment. And while the actual structure of those sounds um, is relatively long, you know, sometimes up to, to two seconds, 
um, uh, they they are perceived as being um, much less interruptive because uh, because of the design. So we take some of those techniques, um, the way of of being an empathetic human being mm-hmm. in real life situations, and apply them to sound. Well, it's interesting there because you talked about the breath, the bloom, and the tail, and every great story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I am a huge Stuart Copeland. Uh, fan, the drummer of the police. That's why I became a drummer in 1978 when I was uh, 10 years old. I mean, he did a program which explored the history of music. And of course, he went to visit the composer of the the infamous Intel mnemonic, which everyone now goes, boom, dun, 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 you know, and he asked the question, does that have storytelling? Is it is it just five notes? Or is it... Um, something that tells a story about Intel as a brand. And he concluded, I won't go into it in length now, but Stuart Copeland meeting the composer, who had a very nice house, <laughs> right? Um, but, <laughs> as you can well imagine, <laughs> the royalties on that thing. But anyway, it, the conclusion was, yes, it does tell some kind of story in a short number of notes. Now, you're not composing mnemonics, and let's not make this conversation sonic identities and sonic branding. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about notifications. But what I do want to talk about, and especially for, we have a lot of apprentices, students listening to this show. I get emails from them saying, uh, you know, I've suddenly found out what I want to do with my life. I'm a musician. I wasn't don't think I was going to be in the next rock and roll band, but I know that this is the course I want to pursue. I'm sure we've got some young listeners or any, it doesn't matter what age they are thinking, this is an area I'd like to pursue. And so my question, I suppose, is do you need to be a musician? And how did you get there? First of all, to anyone who's interested in working in the field of product sound design, I would say um, there's it's a field with a lot of potential right now. It's a, it's a very young field. Um, and you can come and help us define it. There's... Um, there's just now a growing realization of of, of um, the global soundscape of technology and the role that it has in in mental and physical health and um, and in creating um, good experiences and strong businesses and brands. Um, so th- there's a lot of potential there. And if you have a musical background, um, that is certainly a good starting place. Um, we have to be careful because uh, this is uh, the kinds of experiences we're creating might use musical elements. Um, but they're not music per se, um, and it's possible to. Uh, we have to shift our thinking from um, from being musicians and and composers and producers uh, to uh, who kind of think about our feeling and our creative vision and what we want to first thinking about what what the best thing is for the the human being at the center of the technology who we're designing for, um, and those things aren't always the same. Um, a lot of times the uh, much more simple, humble-sounding sounds um, are what what the experience and what the human at the center of the experience needs versus um, you know a really beautiful musical composition that they might want to listen to some other time. But that's not that's not part of their email, right? That's not that's not part of the the platform that is supporting uh, the digital platform that's supporting all their experiences and connecting them to the world and to their information and and to their relationships. So. Um, the first thing we have to do is, is, is understand it from, from their perspective. Um, and I would also say just because the sounds are more humble does not mean they're less beautiful. Um, a lot of people would probably be shocked at how much time we spend to get those sounds just right. Um, you know, when, when you're designing a set of a suite of 10 sounds that are going to put 253 years of audio into the world every day, um, you spend a lot of time on it. There's a lot of iteration, um, not just of, you know, kind of orchestrating them as a little set, um, but each individual sound, um, you know, we iterate, um, you know, we, we've done hundreds of sounds for everyone that, that ships in, in some cases, many hundreds, <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to say. Um, so there's, there's a lot of iteration and a lot of opportunity for creativity, but we have to kind of shift our thinking about what, uh, you know, we're not being the artist here. We are, we're being supportive and we're there to help the, uh, the, the human being at the center um, have a beautiful experience. Now, a, a beautiful, functional and inclusive experience. It doesn't mean it can't also be a soulful experience, that we can't also um, interject a lot of creativity into it. Um, but the creativity has to all be directed toward um, 
towards first creating a supportive experience. Otherwise, it's just distracting and, and kind of irrelevant. And then if that's what we want to do, we should be producing music, uh, not, not designing product sound. So um, what I would say is that music is a great start, um, but I would also, if I were uh, starting out in the field, I, w- I would also want to expand my, my foundations with other things that are important, like cognitive psychology, um, interaction design, uh, or, you know, anthropology has been really helpful for me. One of the things that impressed me in our preparation call was that there was an individual at Microsoft recognizing that their platforms, their devices were creating a lot of sound. And instead of just recruiting musicians, they went to a particular field of music, which is where you come from. And your where you studied, Matthew, was conveniently located near to Microsoft's head office. Tell that story. Yeah, so... Um... I had uh, studied formal, um, you know, more traditional uh, music uh, in, in, uh, as a young person and in college, um, uh, performance and, and composition at various music schools. And I got more and more interested in, um, in ethnomusicology, in, in non-Western music, in the roots of improvisation and um, various approaches to, to structuring composition and improvisation, which led me to uh, an interest in the music of West Africa and also in um, into Indian classical music and as well as like Indonesian gamelan music. So I was getting pulled more and more by my interests out of the Western musical canon at that time. And the, and the field for studying that was is ethnomusicology, the anthropology of music. Um, and as it turns out, there are about five really good uh, ethnomusic pro- uh, at the time there were five really good ethnomusicology programs in the United States, and one of them was in Seattle. So I moved to Seattle uh, to do graduate work in ethnomusicology at the University of Washington, uh, thinking that I would have a career probably uh, like most ethnomusicologists at that time, if I was lucky enough to get a job um, in academia, uh, and hopefully, you know, able to be a creative artist as well as a, as a, as a teacher. Right. Okay. And I wasn't really thinking it out all that <laughs> much into the future, but I just knew that this was um, uh, an area of of knowledge that I really wanted to to absorb. And I didn't even realize at the time how much that was going to help me later um, as the head of sound design at Microsoft. But ethnomusicology, um, the anthropology of music, is all about understanding music not just as sound structure, but also as social and cultural. Uh, structure and interpreting everything in a social and cultural context. And that kind of big picture thinking, um, especially across um, many different cultures, uh, kind of globally, um, is really important for the the kind of work that, that I was able to do um, when I was head of sound design at Microsoft. And, um, and yeah, it, it just sort of, it, it supplemented the, the musical knowledge with... Um, with this kind of framework for understanding sound and sensory experience uh, across cultures, which for me, that was really important. Now, not everybody necessarily has to be an ethnomusicologist to be uh, a good product sound designer. There are lots of different paths into it, um, but I think they all involve um, building out your musical foundation with other kinds of, of disciplines uh, in the humanities and, and in computer science and, and engineering as well. Ideally, what we're doing is combining um, art and, and science and, and engineering and psychology. So um, there's a lot of potential to, to do that. Um, but the art isn't the only thing. And I guess that's what can be kind of surprising to young people sometimes who, who are you know, fantastic uh, musicians or composers um, is that this is, uh, it, it's a little more, uh, uh, it, it's multidisciplinary. Let's, let's put it that way. And, and the more kinds of, um, humanities, liberal arts, and sciences that you can bring into it, um, the better product sound designer you'll be. I have to ask you a question. It's awards season at the moment, Matthew. Obviously, we've just had the BAFTAs as we record this. The Oscars are yet to come, 2021. Is there an awards ceremony for best notification on a computer platform? And should there be? 
Um, you know, it might help stimulate growth in the discipline and awareness um, among other experts who, who still don't necessarily fully recognize product sound design as, as a... Um, as a sister discipline right now it's often kind of grouped with sonic branding which is a, a very different way yeah. of a, approaching sound there's certainly overlap but it does seem like a category in its own right but i would like to throw out to you in the field of um notification geeks what's the holy grail <laughs> oh that's great um <laughs> well you know th- there are some great sounds out there that have become iconic and part of our cultural uh heritage um uh, I would say startup sounds. Uh, there are a few startup sounds um, from the old days that I that are very important in the days when computers took a long time to start up, um, and you needed a sound um, to to sort of confirm that that everything was working. Um, I'd say the probably the Brian Eno startup sound for Windows ninety five um, is one of the most important ones in in my world. Um, because of the way he combined, um, he, he was able to condense, create this little mini music composition, as he called it, that was three and a half seconds long, but had a beginning, middle, and an end. And it seemed to really capture that emotional moment of of opening into something, like your 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 system is coming online, your technology is connecting you to to these beautiful experiences. It had this kind of aspirational sound, but also kind of um, relaxed and calm. And in a way, it was ahead of its time um, in terms of how how modern those aesthetics are. Um, now, after that, um, in in the world of various platforms, there were a lot of just kind of um, almost video game sounds that, that got used as a startup sound. or like these very powerful technical sounds and synthesized and um, very synthetic and and uh, uh, kind of um, big big effects right. um, became uh, became stylish, and we've really come full circle. Uh, f- but but I would say that that the you know kind of set the tone for for modern product sound design, and especially for something that's important to me, which is these uh, this idea of miniature music, kind of these para musical moments that we create these little kind of. Um, musical poems that are really just a couple seconds long, if that, um, but they weave together with the other musical moments um, and create this kind of uh, emotional texture or like what I would call a gently branded soundscape. So I would also say the iconic Mac system startup sound um, from from their hardware boot sound. Now that's a different kind of sound because that is actually from the the hardware device turning on. It's not from the system coming online. The, the Windows startup sounds have traditionally been um, uh, after the device boots up, Windows launches, and when the system's ready, you get this sound. So the emotional moment is kind of different. The Mac sound has traditionally been um, the hardware button press that starts the boot up sequence. But that's definitely become an important sound too, and and they're bringing it back. Apple has announced, it, it, it's kind of cool that Apple's bringing it back. I know there's uh, a lot of kind of nostalgia and love for, for that sound. That's so funny. So you heard it here first, folks. The Windows 95 startup command is the jazz singer of the notification world. <laughs> <laughs> so Matthew, it's fantastic to hear of your studies and your musical background and seeing how everything's combined to put you into the position where you were composing sounds for uh, Microsoft. You now have your own company, uh, Acoustic Ecology. What's the future hold for Matthew Bennett? I created Acoustic Ecology um, with the goal to shift the way people think about the sound of technology. And I think there's it, it's a relatively young discipline, product sound design, as, as we've mentioned. Mm-hmm. And um, my... My big vision is to help create a, a more harmonious um, global soundscape of technology that you know it's, it's more functional, more beautiful, more inclusive, uh, more soulful, and it's just a really exciting area right now. A lot of um, a lot of leaders realize that sound is important, um, but they're not necessarily sure where to start or how to think about it. So I try to offer my clients a new way of hearing, um, a new way of listening to their products. To their customers um, and and to their environments, 
So oh, that's I, wonderful. I, I, I basically created acoustic ecology to realize the full potential of the sound and sensory design model. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, having this discussion with you today, Matthew. I'm so grateful to you for giving up the time. And uh, this is the brave new world of sound and product design. You know, we talk a lot on this um, program about the well-being benefits of Im uh, um, improved acoustics in the built environment. And of course, one of the things that this show has really highlighted is, yes, quiet mark. Uh, certifies products which are quiet and have the best sound tonalities because we know that they bring harmonious soundscapes to our homes and our offices. That's the products. We've also recently set up the Acoustics Academy to certify the building materials, the windows, floors, doors, ceilings, vents, the, the things that build the buildings. We, we've been quite much certifying them and putting them into our Acoustics Academy. But you can have the best acoustics, you can have the best sounding appliances, but at the end of the day, we are all attached to these devices and being barraged by them. And it's wonderful to hear you give a sort of hopeful vision of a responsible future towards designing for these devices so that, yes, we can improve acoustics in the environment. We can also improve the acoustics of our devices because this is all fundamental to our well-being with sound moving forward. And it's in great hands with you, Matthew. And again... Thank you for, for sharing such pearls of wisdom and such great experience. It's been an absolute joy for me. I've loved it. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for the wonderful discussion. I'd like to say, say one more thing. I don't know if you can use it, but um, I love the way that you connected the sound of technology there with other important areas of um, sound and sensory experience in our life, uh, architectural and structural, um, and also uh, industrial design mm -hmm. and, and appliances, because... I really think they're all connected, right? Um, and uh, the the they all form work together to form our soundscape of technology. So it's really exciting to think about how the roots of sensory design go back to um, architecture and industrial design. So the fact that you've mentioned those two areas um, in relationship to the sound of technology um, and the emerging sort of discipline of of sound and sensory design um, is really meaningful to me because I think Great. we can learn a lot from from the history of industrial design and certainly um, architecture and, and environmental design. And, and there's so much potential for those three um, spheres to, to work together to create um, just really beautiful and functional environments that, that can support people and um, Very true. mental well-being. Please do stay in touch and let us know how you get along. We wish you well. Absolutely. Thank you very much. It's, it's been really fun to talk with you. Our huge thanks to Matthew Bennett for taking the time to share such amazing experience with us. Chatting with Matthew really encouraged me to explore quiet through a different lens. We recently added a new page to our website in the How Quiet Mark Certifies Products section. And within it, there's a section which says why we don't publish decibel levels. We say, giving out the definitive decibel level of a product may be confusing. In addition, two similar functioning products may emit the same decibel level. However, one may sound pleasant and the other sound unpleasant and irritating. This will not be reflected in the decibel measurement alone. And when you think about the constant level of notifications that we receive on our watches, phones and computers, they're not necessarily loud depending on how you've got your devices set up, but certainly mine aren't very loud. And as I said in the show, they're sometimes just haptic. But what Matthew helps us to realize, as is echoed on our website, is that it's not just about volume and decibels. Quiet is a state of being. And by the same token, it's not silence either. Silence can be quite eerie, lonely and unsettling in certain circumstances. So no, quiet, as Matthew articulates so well, is a satisfying, multi-sensory feeling that we experience when all feels right in our environment. And that is why the Quiet Mark podcast explores the human relationship with sound in all its aspects. And if you'd like to know more about the subject, perhaps subscribe to our new newsletter, which is called Quiet Times, your sonic news bulletin. As I add the finishing touches to this episode, we're preparing to launch issue three, which will feature notes from this conversation with Matthew, alongside notes from our previous episode with Martin Ware, the founder of the Human League and Heaven 17, who did a wonderful episode with us called From Synths to Soundscapes and a whole host of other sound-related stories. To subscribe for your free online copy, go to quietmark.com and you'll see a button there to subscribe to our newsletter. 
Thanks again for listening to the show. We've got some amazing guests in the pipeline. Just a couple of days ago, I spoke to Bernie Krauss and Melissa Pons on the art of field recording. And discussing the subject of noise pollution in construction, I've recently spoken with Peter Wilson, one of the founders of Echo Barrier. So there's that and a whole lot more to look forward to in forthcoming episodes. I do hope you can join us. For now, though, thank you for listening. Stay safe. And I look forward to you joining us again soon. Take care. Bye bye.